Well, good morning, everyone. Ivan, is this turned on, buddy? I charged it. I don't think it's charged. It should be charged. It is definitely charged, so is it plugged in? Probably not. Alright, don't sweat it. I use my outdoor voice. No worries. No worries. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, this morning uh, to uh, Jeremiah. We're going to continue on. Uh, This is kind of part two of what uh, I preached last um, Sunday morning, just really dealing with uh, some of the issues that we face today uh, in light of uh, Jeremiah's ministry. And I believe uh, what we're going to go over today will really kind of expound the essence and seedbed of Jeremiah's ministry, starting in uh, chapter 4, verse 19. Reading, I'll be reading from the King James Version today, starting in verse 19. My bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my very heart. My heart maketh a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace, because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled and my curtains in a moment. How long shall I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for... Uh, allowing us to even gather today, Lord. What a privilege, Lord, that, that we can come together and we can put away everything else that would occupy our minds this morning, occupy our hearts. We can lay aside everything, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you give us the ability to repent of our sin. The sins that we've committed throughout the week, the willfulness of our sin and the acts of rebellion that we know that we've committed. Lord, we ask God that you would forgive us in the name of Christ, that your blood uh, would cleanse us of all sin, Lord Jesus. I would ask today, Lord, that you would help me uh, proclaim your word and that you'd make your word known to your people and those who are outside of the faith would come to faith. Anybody that does not know you today would be convicted and, and enlightened Lord, and their eyes would be open that they would see the beauties of Christ and they would come. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm. Of war, We know that the uh, King James uses the word bowels, and that really gives us a deeper sense of the pain and the agony that uh, Jeremiah was experiencing in the reality of God moving upon him in such a way that it was bringing an anguish into his life that was unusual, out of proportion, just with daily living. This was more than just a morning devotion. 
uh, for Jeremiah. This was God moving upon his vessel uh, in a way that Adam Clark notes. He says that from this particular verse to the 29th verse, the prophet describes the ruin of Jerusalem and the desolation of Judea by the Chaldeans in a language and imagery scarcely paralleled in the entire Bible. So this particular verse uh, is really amplified in the pain that is expressed and what the scriptures are trying to communicate to us this morning is this reality of utter agony and what God's going to do to his people. And the fact that Jeremiah himself had to be the recipient of God's agony to be displayed to the people around him. Matthew Henry writes, the prophet is here in an agony and cries out like one upon the rack of pain with some acute distemper or as a woman in travail. Another version says deranged. So this is the kind of picture that God is uh, illustrating for us or this metaphor of this reality and any woman that could tell you who's had birth, the pain and the agony and the travail, that kind of pain is unrecognizable to any man. We just don't get it if we have not been through it. And this is kind of the picture here of Jeremiah's agony. His anguish was that of a woman in travail as a deranged and very disturbed human being. And with such graphic imagery and intensity of language, we do have to ask the question, what is wrong with Jeremiah? What is wrong with him? I mean, today in the church at large, anybody that behaves in such a way who decries against sin or is in pain and agony over sin or uh, evil in this country, you get the question, you know, uh, what's wrong with this guy? What's wrong with this woman? What's wrong with them? Why was his burden and his agony likened to the volcanic, thro volcanic throes of a woman in travail? Well, the, the answer is, is, is really simple. If you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, if you've ever read Lamentations, you'll know that Jeremiah's nation had fallen under the wrath of God, the wrath and the judgment of God. His people were on the verge of desolation, and Jeremiah's heart was not only just breaking for his people and his own nation. But his heart was really shattered for God. His whole shattering effect was really this relationship with God. The intensity of this verse should strike us deeply. God's anger is provoked because his name is being trampled upon by his own people. By his own people. In Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 1, he cries out, he says, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah was raised up during the reign of the last kings prior to his nation being carried away into the Babylonian captivity. The call to be a prophet came to Jeremiah in 625 B.C., and he was active throughout the reigns of the last four kings of Judah and continued sometime after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Some suggest that Jeremiah was somewhere around 13 to 16 years old when the Lord started giving him his word. In Jeremiah 1.6, you hear this. Jeremiah said, Then I said, Ah, Lord, God, behold, I do not know how to speak. 
for I am only a youth. For all of you today that think you're too young to serve God or you're too small or what, whatever and you're not you know, at a place in your life where you can serve God, you're wrong. Because God can use anybody at any age, at any time, in any place to bring His Word to His people. We want to remember this because young people are a very important part of our culture. They make up our culture and they will be our future leaders. We always got to remember to keep them lifted up in prayer because the enemy loves to attack our youth. They're a major target of Satan, and that is true. But also they're a major target of the Lord God himself. And God wants to use young people to spread his word, to confront sin, not in, in their own lives, but the lives of people around them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah was called by God to the prophetic office during the darkest days of Old Testament history. Think about that. Some kid, out of all people, that God chooses. You know, we, we talked about John the Baptist and the extraordinary ministry that he had, but his characteristics were pretty much contradictory of all the things that we were seeing in the day with all the Pharisees. Same here, we see Jeremiah uh, called at a very young age in the darkest time of Old Testament history. Here, God takes a child. God takes a child and empowers him. And not only empowers him, uh, did not just to go out and tell everybody that God loves them and they have a wonderful life, but he's calling Jeremiah to probably one of the most difficult ministries ever written in Scripture. Here he was at a time when his nation was coming under the judgment of God and they were going to fall under the captivity of a pagan nation under Babylon and be carried away. And here's this young boy called by God uh, not just to preach the word but to go to a specific spot at the gates and proclaim a message directly from the Lord God himself. And remember this. We can look at this and we can hear this and say, wow, you know what? That's just amazing that God would use such a young person in such an extraordinary way. But can I tell you that the dark days of Old Testament history and these dark days that Jeremiah preached in, we're preaching in similar dark days today. Do you realize that? A lot of times, you know, you read in the, you read in the book of Malachi where God says, I will, I will curse your blessings. And a lot of times, just because it may look outwardly, you know, like things are prospering all around us, they're not prospering in the right way. They're prospering in a way that's an absolute abomination to God. We may see all kinds of things going on in our country and still say, well, look at our country. We're so prosperous and so blessed. But the reality is if you really want to get down um, to the nook and cranny on this, you're going to notice that we are living in some very, very dark days. Some very dark days. And we too must take what God said to Jeremiah very seriously and the reaction that Jeremiah had to the words and the commands of God should also be taken by us as well. Yes, in the same way. I'm not saying you're prophets. I'm not saying we're Old Testament prophets. But I'm saying that we serve the living God and God still hates sin. And God still hates when his nations disobey him. And God still uses people to proclaim truth and confront lies even in our day. 
The kingdom of Israel was some 150 years gone from the scene when Jeremiah was born. The only kingdom left when Jeremiah was recruited by God for his mission was the kingdom of Judah. So when Jeremiah lived, the house of Israel had been long scattered among the Gentile nations some 150 years previously, powerless, with no identity and no longer a recognizable people or kingdom. And the only house of Judah or the Jews were the visible remnant of the once combined nation of Israel left for the world to see. This was it. This is all that was left. And the judgment of God had come, and, and it was coming. And Jeremiah was thrust on the scene. But you know what? Jeremiah just didn't go on the scene as some ministry. I mean, he was totally shattered by God. He was totally moved upon by God. He was wrecked. He was wrecked by God. And only a person that has a delivery like that from God himself really can go out and combat the forces of evil. That said, it is also true that the sins of Judah and Jeremiah's day were exactly the same sins as Israel, whom God scattered among the nations of Assyria more than a century prior to Jeremiah's birth. God does tell Jeremiah to address part of his testimony against the long-ago scattered house of Israel and not just against Judah. He says this, I will pronounce judgment on my people for all their evil, for deserting me, he says, and worshiping other gods. Yes, they worship idols that they themselves have made. Jeremiah 1.16 Listen to the word of the Lord, people of Jacob, all you families of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What sins did your ancestors find in me that led them to stray so far away? They worshipped foolish idols only to become foolish themselves. We, come, we become what we behold. What we worship and what we love and what our affections are drawn to, we become just like that. you realize that? That's the way idols work because idols are fashioned from our own hearts. They don't just pop out of nowhere. Idols actually, they, they are formed from the depravity of our own being. And the foolish thing about idols is that we become exactly like them. And the characteristics of Jeremiah's ministry is seen in what I have titled this morning to be Jeremiah's boiling point. To where Jeremiah actually came to a boiling point. And I believe God will take each son and daughter of the Most High and He will cause them by His power to reach these elevated points in their lives where they'll say enough is enough. I've got to do something. I can't just sit idly back anymore and just do nothing. I can't just close my eyes and turn my back on the battle. But you know, you're not going to do anything until God moves on you in such a way that causes you to react in such a way. Maybe it is as painful as a woman in travail. It may not be that painful. But there should be some personal shattering within our own being that would cause us to do something that we would never do before. What causes a missionary to go out into the fields and, and never come back? People that come against great odds and great adversity, great pain, because God has moved on them. God has transformed them. God has wrecked them. God has come upon them and moved them in such a way. It's been such a shattering, present reality in their lives 
that it thrust them into a world that they would never go any other way. You can't manufacture that boldness from the flesh. That's only can be engineered by the Holy Spirit of God. But we must seek God. We must appeal to God. We must petition God that He would move upon the family of God in such a way in our day today. What does it mean like when you hear the word boiling point? You hear that a lot, like boiling point. What exactly does that mean? Well, really, I mean, in all fairness, it's actually a definition, actually a word that's used in physics or chemistry to describe the temperature at which the vapor pressure of a liquid is equal to the pressure of the atmosphere. In other words, is that the vapor pressure of the liquid, the person himself, becomes the means and by which the atmosphere demands. In our view, it is the point beyond which one becomes angry, outraged, or agitated. It's the point at which matters reach a particular crisis. I don't know about you, if you've ever been in a crisis before, but I do know that each and every one of us has been through a crisis when we were converted. When we become, when we become born again, it is actually a crisis in our lives where we go from one state to another, uh, into a transformation. But here, what I think is what we're dealing with here is a particular individual who belongs to God, but God, who is sovereign and omnipresent, he's everywhere, but God sees a, a situation. He sees trouble. And God's remedy is his church. God's remedy is always his people. I mean, obviously, we know that God can move through catastrophes. He can move through destruction. We know that God can bring particular judgments upon people, upon lands, places, and cities. But God's chosen means is usually through his people. Even in the sense of bringing grace or bringing judgment. God, his way of things, is using people. To Jeremiah, his time was an emergency, a crisis, one instant away from a complete cataclysmic Event. I mean, literally, his entire nation, or what was left of it, was weighed in the balance. And this is where God was calling him to be able to deal with God's forsaken people once and for all. Jeremiah cried out, he said, My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent. What seems to be communicated here is that when the pain reaches such an apex to that extent, there's no turning back. It's a point where the anguish has reached such a level to where at this point you cannot remain silent. You cannot remain quiet. Uh, you have, if, if you try to suppress that, you're going to explode. It's this ignition switch that God puts in each and every one of us that would cause us to go do something that would speak up and say something uh, in, in a time of great trouble. Our nation today is in great trouble. We are in a great, great crisis in this country. And I'm going to tell you something. Politics isn't the answer. Politicians aren't the answer. The church is God's answer. Do you realize that? That the church, your God uses all different means. 
Don't get me wrong. I, I understand what Romans 13 means. I understand the, the, how God uses government. I'm not saying God doesn't use the government. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is God uses his church. And this is why judgment always comes to the house of God first. Because we're responsible. We're responsible. We're to pray. We're to seek God. And we're to be there in the midst of these crises that are going on all around us. Jeremiah said, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire, shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Abraham Michelle writes in the book called The Prophets. He says, Jeremiah was filled with a blazing passion. And it was this emotional intensity which drove him to discharge God's woeful errands. Jeremiah was filled to overflowing with the wrath of God, which he could neither suppress nor contain. The word hema indicating the indignation of God. This is our young Jeremiah, by the way. The prophet was filled with a passion which demanded release. If he tried to contain it, its flame burned within him like a fever. Now, I'm not saying all of us need to have some experiential encounter with God where we all got to just flip out and go into some ecstatic rage. But what I'm saying is that there has to be some kind of move of God upon your life to cause you to do something and to say something and to stand for truth in a, in a, in a nation that's completely apostatized and complete, a church that's completely compromised. I like what Paul said. Paul said, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory in. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, cursed is me. If I preach not the gospel. This whole idea of necessity laid upon me comes basically from the same place. Another version reads, For if I preach the gospel, I have no, nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. What does compulsion mean? Well, it's this. It's this action or state of forcing or being forced into doing something. An irresistible urge to behave in a certain way especially against one's conscious wishes. In other words, it's this, this urge that comes upon you, this compulsion. For Paul says, you know, I'm under this compulsion. I have to speak up. I have to open my mouth for the unborn. I have to speak against these movements that criticize the scripture and trample upon the name of our Lord. I can't just sit back while this heretical version, this counterfeit version of the church remains in this country and blasphemes the name of Christ. I can't just sit back and say nothing and do nothing. Why? Is it because you're a great person and a great prophet? No. It's because God's heart is upon you. And the Spirit of God moves you in such a way. Paul cried out for the love of Christ. It constraineth us. Why do we do what we do? Why do you stand against lies? Is it because you want to look good in front of your friends on some YouTube video? 
What is your what is your reason to confront lies? Because you love God. And He's shatteringly present in your life. And you're not just going to sit around and allow other people to trample the name of the Lord and remain silent. It grieves us. Read Lamentations. You want to read about grief and pain and anguish and agony and the burden of the Lord. Jeremiah was relentless. He called, he urged his people to repent. And in man's terms, he failed. He screamed, he wept, he moaned, and it was left with terror in his soul. Utterances denoting the wrath of God, the intent and threat of destruction are found more frequently and expressed more strongly in Jeremiah than in any other prophet. For this reason, Jeremiah has often been called a prophet of wrath or a prophet of doom. I believe Jeremiah came to his boiling point in two ways. I'd like to quickly go over these two ways with you this morning. Jeremiah reached his boiling point in two ways. Let me grab a drink of water really quick. The first way was passionate praying. Passionate praying praying. See, Jeremiah was not a he was not a popular preacher. He was not popular by any means. His preaching actually got him thrown into prison, similar to John the Baptist. He declared that Judah would soon start 70 long years in captivity and nothing could thwart the hand of God in judgment. But it's here that Jeremiah uh-huh. learned something extremely profound. He learned how to pray. And many of us pray, but many of us have never really learned how to pray. And sometimes God puts us in the belly of the beast. He puts us in the furnace. He puts us in places. Many times that could be a prison. It could be anywhere. But he puts us in in places because what that does is the pain, it, it ignites real relationship with God. It no longer is just your duty It's no longer a spiritual exercise. It's no longer just a devotion in the morning. It's no longer you just went and said your prayers. It's real communication with the sovereign God, with the living God. You actually are pressed into God. Trying times either will cause an exposure for who you truly are or they will drive you to the feet of our Savior. They'll drive you to God. They will drive you into communication that you never thought was attainable before. Think of those times when you went through the most painful moments in your life. And remember the way you prayed. Remember the way that you cried out to God. Remember the agony. Remember the disappointments that you've had. The rejection. When you felt completely alone and every single person you thought you could trust had abandoned you and left you for dead, basically. Remember how you clung to Christ in those dark periods of your life. Remember those moments of pain when you had nothing else to turn to. No pill would take it away, but you clung to Christ. This is the kind of relationship that we're dealing with here. It's passionate praying. It's just not saying your prayers. It's praying. It's communicating with God. It's being with God. It's knowing God. It's being known by God. It's living in such a way where 
The most intimate moments of your life are displayed before God in some of your darkest moments. Jeremiah 33, 1-3 says, While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. This is what the Lord says. He who has made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. And he says to Jeremiah these profound words that are very simple to understand. It doesn't take a theology major to get it. He says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. That's simple. He's saying, call upon me, look to me, call upon me. And I will answer you. He's not saying, I might answer you. Or you didn't quite say your prayer correctly. No, he's saying, call upon me and I will answer you. God says, call to me. It's not a very difficult thing to understand. And your praying should start with this. Our praying should be a calling upon the name of the Lord, calling upon God. You want to know why? Because God says he will answer you. He will answer you. He will answer you. But you say, I've been so shamed with sin. I'm disgusting and vile. I've done all kinds of things that would offend God. God would never want any part of me. I am stained with sin. I'm a shameful creature. I'm to be abhorred. As Peter said, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. But this is not what God says. He says, come to me. Call to me. Jesus said, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. You come to him with all of your shame, all of your filth, all of your dirt, all of your rebellion, all of your wayward ways. Don't be guilted and shamed by other people. Come to Christ. Why do you think he died? He died for sinners. He died for sin. He said he didn't come to die for good and righteous people. His point was that the Pharisees thought that they could obtain heaven without him. But he's come for ragged, ruined, sinful people. But you say, I'm born again, and I struggle with sin, and I'm fighting with sin, and I feel that God is angry with me and wants no part of me, and I'm afraid to come to him. I don't dare open the scriptures because when I do, all I see is condemnation. I would say to you, beloved, that God loves you, and he is appealing to you to call to him, to call to him, call upon his name. Remember this. If you are his and he has purchased you with his infinite blood, nothing can remove that love that he has for you. Do you understand that? I want you to be confident in that today. I want you to understand that. Because you'll never have any kind of life as a Christian if you believe that every time you sin or every time you fall or every time you have a season that doesn't seem to be what you would like it to be. You feel like there's no way you can come to Christ. But we have to understand the infinite value of that reality of Christ's blood and Christ's death and what he accomplished on the cross. We have to understand that, that I belong to him. 
and I desire to be with him. And your life will never be charged. You'll never have any true boldness if you think God hates you. You walk around and you think God is angry with you all the time because you're not living up to a certain standard every day. That is no way to live the Christian. That is not the Christian life. That's not the Christian life. That's religion. We want to be free in that. Obviously, we want to hate sin. But let me tell you something. If you truly love God, you will develop a hatred towards sin. You don't enjoy it. The Bible says the way the transgressor is hard. That transgressor, sin is only hard for the believer, not the unbeliever. It's easy to sin when you're not a Christian. You enjoy it. But the way of the transgressor is hard. But why? Because we hate it, even when we do it. But God is compassionate. And if you would just call on him today, this is what I'd like you to do. Today, when you go home and you're still having those endless struggles in your brain telling you that there's just no way... Um, I mean, I'm able to come to God and realize that that's sin as well. It's pride. Call upon him today. Call upon him. Call upon him. And the Bible says he will answer you. You may say, well, that's kind of cheesy. No, it's not cheesy at all. The problem is that we've made Christianity into a harsh, scolding religion. That's not what it is. It's a righteous, holy, godly faith. But God cares about his people. But on the opposite end, Charles Spurgeon says this, it is well said that neglected prayer is the birthplace of all evil. Neglected prayer is the birthplace. Talk about giving birth to all evil. If you're neglecting prayer, which I have, don't get me wrong, I'm up here on my high horse saying that I've got a perfect prayer life. But what he's saying here. All the issues that you have most likely come from a lack of prayer. True prayer. Not just saying your prayers, but true communion with God is the greatest deliverance from any sin. And you're going to find, you can trace back, most of your problems usually come from a lack of prayer. I can trace most of my problems and issues attitudinally as well is my time in prayer or no time in prayer. E.M. Bounds says this, he says, passionate prayer produces passionate preaching. J.C. Ryle says, a prepared heart is much better than a prepared sermon. A prepared heart will make a prepared sermon. And that's exactly what we see with Jeremiah. It wasn't just he has this great sermon to go preach to everybody, right? It's more like he has been moved through his communion with God. He had called upon God. He knew God. And I would say the calling upon his life was almost a point of being strangled. If you think of the anguish and the agony, I mean, who writes like that? My bowels, my bowels. I'm in anguish. The pounding of my heart. The sound of war. Which brings us to our next and last points. Passionate preaching. Now, I'm not saying that preaching in the sense of what I'm talking about is preaching is um, something bestowed on every single person. What I mean is, is that you open your mouth for Christ. You declare his gospel, which is a command and mandate for every believer. To open your mouth for Christ. And if your communion with God is passionate, and if your prayers are passionate with God, it will produce passionate, 
passionate declaration. Passionate preaching. It doesn't, passionate preaching doesn't come from a cold closet. It comes from a hot closet. It comes from a relationship with God. Think about uh, Jeremiah's ministry was at the temple gate. And he was dealing with a superficial trust in the temple and external religion. Could you imagine? Because the gates is where all the prominent people hung out. And a lot of times it's where all the sales and all the venues and all the things are being sold. But it's also very a political stronghold as well. The gates always had a political sense to them. It's where the political heads always stood. It's where they were always at the gates. They made the judgments upon the people. They would decide um, certain uh, cases would be decided at the gates. You know, the um, priest would be coming out of the temples as well. So you think about Jeremiah and the crowd that he was preaching to. What a rough crowd. As a matter of fact, his preaching, you know, ended him up in prison. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And we see in Jeremiah 26, also has Jeremiah preaching at the temple gate in the first year of the reign of Jehoiakim. In a sermon with many of the same themes. Some think this particular sermon in Jeremiah 26 is basically the same sermon that he is preaching here, dealing uh, with 1 through 4. Others think it's an earlier delivery of a similar sermon, delivered in the same place. Anyway, Jeremiah 26, 8 through 11 indicates that after that sermon, Jeremiah was attacked and threatened with his life. Jeremiah's message is extremely important, especially if we understand our relationship with God and we've come out of that place with God. We have to understand that our message needs to be a certain way, especially when it comes, as many of us today, it's not going to be necessarily towards the world, but a lot of it is going to be towards the apostate church of our day. Where Jeremiah cried out to the professing believers where all had gone astray, he said to them, amend your ways and your doings. Amend your ways. In other words, repent of your sin. Do not trust in these lying words. And this was the most offensive thing that you could say to the priest. Stop saying the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. When you live the way that you live. That isn't going to save you on the day of judgment. They're obsessed with that. And only the power of God through the preaching of His Word can shatter those lies. Jeremiah said, if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. Jeremiah's preaching was passionate. And he needed plenty of courage and boldness to do this work. And so do we. So do we. Some pandering little pampering 
version of the gospel is not going to do anything. Remember one time being in Scotland and standing through a very up against a very angry mob of people. I thought to myself, if I don't preach the truth, I'm going to get destroyed. If I don't preach the true gospel to these people, I'm not going to have been destroyed anyway. But if you're going to stand up here and preach some impotent, mamby-pamby humanism to these people, you're going to get killed. Only the true word of God can confront these people. And only the true gospel must be preached in the days that we live. Nothing else is going to work. Only the truth. Professor John Murray once wrote, To me, preaching without passion is not preaching at all. You heard a dead, you ever heard a, you have you ever heard dead sermons before? You heard the preaching and you're just doing everything in your power to stay awake? Slapping yourself. John Wesley said, catch on fire and people will come to watch you burn. Leonard Ravenhill once said, there is nothing more unsuitable in such heavenly business as to be dull. Let people see that you are in earnest. Men will not cast away their dearest pleasures by a drowsy request. Richard Baxter said, I preached as a dying man to dying men and as if I would never preach again. If you look at the word, the origin of passion, the word passion actually comes from the Latin word passio, which actually means suffering or enduring. The use was extended to the sufferings of the martyrs and from there to strong emotion and finally to today's popular use to describe a burning desire. The very word pathos, like its Latin equivalent, passio, from the word pati, which means to suffer means a state or condition in which something actually happens to a man. Or something actually happens to you in such a way and that's the passion that comes out of you. Abraham Michel writes, the prophets, they define passion in the sense of pathos, which is really ultimately at the end of the day is the fear of God. The awe and the fear of the Lord, which the Bible says is the beginning of wisdom. Passion was regarded as a motive power, a spring, and an incentive. Great deeds are done by those who are filled with ruach, with pathos, which would be considered divine passion. To us, we would say, the Holy Spirit of God moving inside of us. Webster's Dictionary in 1828 defines passion in the language of pathos as passion, warmth, or vehemence in a speaker or in a language that which excites emotions and passions, strongly emotional, intense, or passionate, zealous, enthusiasm. And we know that the word enthusiasm comes from the ancient Greek word entheos, meaning inspired or possessed by God. The two key meanings in English of the word are passion, Possession by a God, supernatural inspiration, prophetic or poetic ecstasy, a rapturous intensity of feeling on behalf of a person or cause, passionate eagerness in any pursuit. Pretty powerful. Just remember passion that really is invoked by God and enabled by God and given to you by God 
will always a boiling point is usually characterized by a turning point as well. It's 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 usually a turning point in your life where you get to a certain point in your life. I don't know where you're at with your Christian faith. Maybe you're struggling with some besetting sin and it just keeps reoccurring, reoccurring, reoccurring. There's a pattern there. But it seems to give this kind of meaning to where you reach such an extent to where your boiling point is characterized by a turning point. I like what the the Puritan William Perkins writes about fear and amazement when it comes to a personal crisis. Listen to this clearly now. This may seem to be an unusual course for God to take in order to confirm and energize His servant in zeal and courage. To strike Him with extreme fear, indeed, to astonish and to amaze Him. Yet it is clear that this is the way God takes. It teaches us that all true ministers, all true believers especially those appointed to speak the greatest words in his church, in the consciousness of the greatness of their function, even a sense of amazement and astonishment, full of admiration for God's glory and God's greatness. Whenever God called any of his servants to a great work, he first drove them into the sense of fear and amazement. When a man is called, it is a work little less than by which God calls a sinner from sin to repentance. Paralyzing that, or um, paralleling that, that, that experience to when God calls you into a certain arena of life to that of when you were born again. That's how extraordinary it is. This is what he's dealing with. This is what he's talking about. This fear and amazement of one who has been a child of darkness and now has become a child of light as one who has been born again, living the humdrum business as usual, and now he's stricken. He's been hit by this point in his life to a boiling point where it's very similar to his conversion. And it moves him into a place and a sphere of influence he's never experienced before. God first casts down the sinner before he gives him grace or any sense of his love in Christ. In the same way, he first humbles and casts down the prophet in the sight of God's majesty and his own misery before he honors him with the commission to preach his word to his people. Man, I hope you're getting this because I'm getting excited. Like to, I've told this story before. Without the uh, thought of becoming redundant, I think it's appropriate to tell it again. One of my heroes, Richard Wormbrand, who was the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs, who spent 14 years in a Romanian prison. Much of it was in solitary confinement. His crime was he took a stand for Christ. It all happened at a pastor's conference in 1949 during the communist takeover in Romania. Sabina, Richard's wife, sat next to her husband as one Christian leader after the next walked onto the stage and blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ, caving into the the demands of the communist officials sitting in the front row. Her heart began to burn within her. 
She was so passionately in love with Jesus Christ and could not stand to hear such things spoken about him by his own professed people. She turned to her husband and she says, Will you not wipe the spit from the face of Christ? Richard then pointed to the communist officers. He said, If I stand up and speak against their agenda, they will kill me. Sabina did not even hesitate. She said, I'd rather be married to a dead man than to a coward. It was the infusion of strength Richard needed. He rose to his feet, sparked by the passion of his wife, and thunderously spoke truth in the midst of lies. I would rather be married to a dead man than to a coward. What a woman, right? remind you before we close is that we must be men and women who pray with fervency. Pray with fervency. The only way you're going to be sustained in this life, the only way you're going to confront the things that go on in this world today and the where our nation is, you've got to take it a notch up. You have got to get serious with the Lord. We have got to get serious with the Lord. We've got to. This nation depends on it. You say, well, you know, the, the Lord's in control, the Lord's in control. Well, God leaves his people here for a reason. We are to be salt and we are to be light. The Puritan William Grinnell says to every preacher, to every really believer, furnish thyself with arguments from the promises of God to enforce thy prayers and make them prevail with God. The promises are the ground of faith and faith when strengthened, will make thee fervent. And such fervency with speed returns with victory from the field of prayer. The mightier a man is in the word, the more mighty will he be in prayer. And I would say the more mighty he is in prayer, the more mightier, the more mighty he'll be with the word. And get out. Get out and, and proclaim and declare Jesus Christ to this ungodly nation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, we pray that you were honored and worshipped in a way that your name was glorified. We thank you for your word today. Pray, Father, that it landed correctly upon your people. Pray that it brought conviction and enthusiasm, correction, but it brought us to a new place of communication with you, Lord. Give us passionate praying, Lord, that would develop into a passionate declaration. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.